This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You're on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Now, we have a big show ahead of us. We've got quite a few guests. One of them is already in the studio, Professor Lawrence Krauss. Welcome. It's good to be here. Now, we have another one on the phone we're going to go to in a moment. Dr. Crystal is with us. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. And Dr. Lauren. Good morning. One about to have a baby, one just had a baby. Exactly, that's it. We're, <laughs> saying, we're passing the mantle on. I haven't, no, I'm not having a baby. <laughs> <laughs> and not involved in either one of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, <laughs> I, I deny any, anything. <laughs> <laughs> now, Lawrence, we're going to have a big interview with you a little bit later. Um, so, you know. So just shut just, up now. No, you. you okay. <laughs> Stay tuned for all that we'll theoretical fine. physics. Uh, theoretical physics is always fun. But on the phone, I'm hoping we have Professor Richard Shine from the University of Sydney. Hello, Richard. Can you hear us? Indeed, I, indeed I can. And I'm normally called Rick, by the way. No problem, Rick. Um, now, first of all, congratulations. You won the Prime Minister's Prize for Science. This is a, it's a pretty big whop and bit of cash too. Well done. Yeah, I'm still somewhat in shock. It's all a bit strange to go to a, a simple-minded field biologist. Mm. Now, let's let's talk through the stuff you've done. I mean, most people listening would be aware of the issue with cane toads, but I suspect a lot of them aren't very um, well-versed in the interaction between cane toads and things like lizards and snakes, your favourite stuff. So talk us through that interaction first. What What is happening with regards to those various species? Well, the big problem with cane toads is that there are no native toads of any kind in Australia. And toads have got a really distinctive poison uh, that defends them against predators. So when toads first turn up, the goannas and the freshwater crocs, the quolls, the, some of the big snakes and lizards try to eat them and they die of a heart attack. So we get something like 95% mortality of these big apex predators within a month or two of toads arriving in, in a new area in tropical Australia. Mm. And so that's pretty devastating. Mm. Now, you've been working on sort of using some very older sort of behavioural principles to combat this problem. How, how does that work? Yeah, well, one of the first things we realised was that although the big apex predators die in droves, a lot of the smaller predator species are not affected, even related to the, to the bigger guys. And the reason for that is that if you eat a small toad, it doesn't actually have all that much poison in it. So it makes you desperately sick, but it doesn't kill you. And you rapidly learn uh, not to eat it. And it's a process called conditioned taste aversion. Uh, many people listening to this show will be very familiar with, with the idea that if you eat something and it makes you ill, you really don't want to eat it again. Mm. Uh, somebody gave me a bottle of scotch when I was 17 years old on a camping trip. I drank far too much of it. I got desperately <laughs> ill, and I still cannot bear the scent of scotch. So, um, it, it, it turns out that the quolls and the goannas and so on are just as smart as I am. Um, if you give them an opportunity to learn by exposing them to a small toad, then they leave all the toads alone after that, and they can coexist perfectly happily with cane toads. So, so how do you go about doing that? Do you literally go up to them and say, you know, here's a small toad, have a, have a, have a taste? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we started out actually with sort of toad-flavoured sausages and things like that. <laughs> and, uh, we, we tried adding uh, some chemicals to the sausages that would make you desperately ill that wouldn't kill you, and that, that was very effective as well. But probably the most effective single stimulus simply is a small toad. Um, in the most, probably most realistic study we've done, we caught um, a lot of uh, the big goannas, the yellow-spotted monitors. This is work done by George Ward-Fear, who is doing a PhD with me. 
put transmitters on the goannas. Uh, this is up in the floodplain in the Kimberley. Uh, and then went out and located those lizards from the telemetry signal and offered them a, sm a small live toad. Um, and the guys that we could manage to uh, talk into eating that toad uh, never had another one. So 18 months later, after the toads had come pouring through the floodplain, um, all of the untrained goannas had died very, very quickly. Uh, and about half of our trained guys were still alive. So it's very effective. Uh, Rick, it's Lauren here. Um, you were mentioning that, you know, obviously you need to get in before the actual cane toad invasion front hits. How long ahead do you have to do that? Is there like a time that you have to release the small cane toads before the main front approaches? Well, it's a great question and we, we don't really know. I mean, the question is, I guess, how long are these guys going to remember mm. that, that cane toads are a bad idea and make the connection between these great big stormtrooper toads that have come in with the front compared to the little guy that made them feel sick. Mm. Um, we've done it very close to the front. I mean, uh, part of that is politics. Uh, you, you get an academic from Sydney uh, suggesting that we should be dumping more toads into the system to save predators from toads. And, of course, uh, your immediate reaction is to think this person probably uh, shouldn't be, uh, be allowed to go out in public. Too much scotch. So, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, look, we, we, we really have to demonstrate that it works, and we've really just got it to the point of now we've shown that it works with quolls, with blue-tongue lizards, and with the big goannas, and they're three of the, the main victims of the toad. And the people that were initially very sceptical about the approach now very much on side, uh, the Western Australian Department of Parks and Wildlife, uh, is going to roll out the teacher toad technology um, as the front moves through. And I think we'll probably be shooting for sites that we're really very confident are going to be colonised within the next month or two. Um, Rick, it's Crystal here. Um, I was just wondering, uh, and I guess it follows on from what you were just describing, how scalable is this solution? Um, it, it sounds quite intensive that, you know, you have to really work one-on-one -on -one with these um, with these animals to uh, give them that, you know, conditioned taste aversion. Um, and is there any chance that this uh, could be passed on? Like, can, can this be learnt as a behaviour um, in, in these species or is it something that you have to do one-on-one -on -one with each individual animal? Yeah, so look, I think you're absolutely right. You have to, it has to be scalable in time and space. So in space, the simple thing just be to dump baby toads uh, around a drying water body in the dry season. They're not going to grow. They're not going to go anywhere. The predators can, can learn. We don't have to, to wander around with a fishing rod dangling baby toads. In terms of time, it, it, clearly we can't do this every generation, but we've shown with the coals uh, some work that John O. Webb and Tegan Cremona have done in Kakadu, that the babies that of the quolls that you have trained actually learn for themselves. Well, we don't know if mum teaches them. I think it's more likely that what happens at the toad front is there are no baby toads. Um, the front's moving about 50 kilometres a year. The babies can't keep up. The girls can't keep up. So there's no breeding for the first year or two. And that means that the first toad you meet will be a big one and it'll kill you. But if you're around a couple of years later, if you can keep those predators around, the toads will have started breeding and your babies will grow up in a world where there's plenty of small toads around. So they get to learn for themselves. Uh, all we have to do is save that first generation, that wave of death that follows mm. the toad front. After that, um, things are probably okay.
Rick, um, I think you sort of touched on this in a way, but what does this mean overall for the toad population? I mean, obviously, this is crucially important for our normal local populations that we're, we're trying to protect. But does it have any effect on the toad population? I mean, they they having to compete for resources more because of this, or is there any projected decline as a result? It's interesting in that the, the predators uh, that we're going to educate and keep in the system. They're not actually eating very many toads because it just takes one toad to kill you. Um, but there are a whole bunch of other native predators that are very good at eating toads and aren't affected by the poison. Um, things like rats and mice are really good at eating toads. Uh, most birds can tell which bit is poisonous and which bit isn't, so they just eat the bits that aren't. Uh, many insects, both in the water and on land, love to eat tadpoles and baby toads. So what seems to happen is that Within a few years of toads arriving, these predators that can eat them start to increase in numbers because there's a new you know, restaurant in town with free food, and the numbers of toads go down as a result. Uh, so if you go to areas where toads have been present for a long time, you tend not to see anything like the numbers that you see in these newly colonised areas. Mm. Well, look, uh, I'm glad to hear that there are other predators. I always thought the only real predator for the cane toad was the three iron, but it um, <laughs> sounds like there, there are other options. Rick, uh, congratulations again on winning the Prime Minister's Prize for Science. It's a fantastic accolade, and um, hopefully you won't be completely swamped by the speaker circuit over the next year and you'll continue to do some of this great <laughs> great research. Is, is it looking likely that you'll be um, at the podium a lot? Oh, look, I think Australians are interested in cane toads. I, I don't know exactly why, but it is a wonderful opportunity for people to get a message from science out there to the broader community. So, look, I seize every opportunity I get and I love an opportunity to, to talk about the ways that understanding what's going on in Australian ecosystems rather than racing out there and uh, with weapons trying to kill the aliens um, is actually probably a more sensible way to, to go with the wildlife management. Absolutely, Rick. Thanks so much for chatting to us today and um, hopefully we will continue to see your great work coming out over the coming years. Thank you. That was Professor Rick Shine uh, from the University of Sydney and the winner of the Prime Minister's Prize for 2016, which is a huge accolade and well done. Now, uh, you're not allowed to hit any cane toads, Lawrence, with golf clubs while you're here in Australia. Uh, well, I, I can't say that I wouldn't. If I'm aiming at the ball, I might hit the toad. So sure. <laughs> you're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us is Professor Lawrence Krauss. He's from the School of Earth and Space Exploration at the Arizona State University and he's the director, or the inaugural director, of its Origins Project. Lawrence, I'd love to start there, actually. What's the Origins Project? Is it the origin of everything? Origin of everything. It's, it's, it's like being a kid in a candy store. We look at everything from the origins of the universe to the origins of consciousness. We had an event on the origins of violence. We actually had a, a very neat event recently on uh, sex, gender, and reproductive rights in the 21st century. We'll be talking about AI. We'll have a big event oh, yeah. on AI, of course, and the challenges and dangers therein. And the coming water wars, which I suppose Australia is um, aware of, but in the United States, uh, it'll become a big issue with climate change. Yeah, we've got a couple of senators in Australia that could be the origins of stupidity, if you want. I met. I think I've been on Q and A with a <laughs> yeah. number of them, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They're not too bad. Um, now let's 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 go bigger. Because um, okay. one good of the things, idea. One of the things I I like you to do. Uh, I've I've heard you do this before, but for our audience is. 
Can you give us the context of what we call the Big Bang? I mean, why, why do we know that this happened? What evidence is there that this actually occurred? And why, why do we need it? You know, I mean, what's, what's the big deal about talking about the Big Bang? Well, let's start with the second one first. I mean, the people, because it often amazes me when people ask, why, you know, what use is this? You know, mm-hmm. because what, what would it matter if we know about the Big Bang? And the answer is it's not going to make a better toaster or a car or anything like that. But, you know, science suffers because it's useful (laughs) and it produces technology. And therefore people figure, well, if it doesn't make some technology, it makes my life easier. It's not worth it. But, Mm. you know, they don't ask that or very few people ask what's the, what's the utility of a Mozart symphony or a good film or or Picasso painting. And the point is that it's all part of the remarkable experience of being human. And science is an amazing part of our culture. And the questions that science addresses, which is how do we get here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Those even the people who ask what what's the point of learning about the Big Bang at some point wondered how they got here and whether they're alone in the universe. They're fundamental questions about being human, and they they improve the experience of being human. So, understanding is a cultural experience, and for me, that's why science and culture match. And I try and bridge mm. the the divide between them a lot. Now, let's go back to the Big Bang. It turns out there's there there's a, a ton of. I was trying to think of a way to, to bring t- cane toads into this, but I can't. But um, <laughs> anyway. Every piece of data we have about the universe tells us there, there was a Big Bang. It really happened, just like evolution really happened. Uh, the, first, the, the first example is that when we look at galaxies away from, around us, on average, they're moving away from us. And the, faster, the farther away they are, the faster they're moving away from us. And if you work that thing backwards, then you find out that all the galaxies were together at a single point, or at least all the material in the galaxies were together at a single point. And amazingly, and this is important, that that point was about 13.8 billion years ago, except for, let's say, the vice president of my, my new vice president of my country and a few other 6, people. 6,000 years. 6,000, yeah, yeah. But, uh, uh, and a few people in your liberal party. But anyway, um, <laughs> let's not go there. And, and so, but the important thing is it could have been wrong. In fact, at various times in my career, different, different ways to determine the age of the universe led to different numbers. And if that continued, it would tell us there's something wrong with the picture. And that's what, that's really important is that it's a picture that can be falsified. It's not just some story we tell, like religion that has, you know, that doesn't, not only is nonsense, but is, but also doesn't, isn't testable. In this case, it was a story that that made predictions. And the key part is every one of those predictions has been verified. People often talk about historical science as if, as if somehow it's not the same as modern science, mm. but it's all the same thing. You look at past experiments and you make predictions about observations you haven't made and you test them. And the Big Bang may have been in the past, but we made predictions about the cosmic wave background or about, about other, uh, about the age of the universe and, 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 and things that we can test. And they're not just one or 10, but hundreds of different bits of evidence. So when someone, and it sometimes happens, I get email every, every day from people who have new theories of the universe and, and their, their argument goes, um, everyone thought Einstein was crazy. Everyone thinks I'm crazy. Therefore, <laughs> and, uh, but the point is they, they try and explain one thing. They say, this bit of data is wrong. I've disproved the Big Bang. And if it was just one bit of data, mm. it's fine. But it's, it's, it's everything we know about the universe is consistent. It really happened. So get over it if you have a problem. Mm. Now, when, when we think about our point in time, mm-hmm. how, how lucky are we? Are we lucky to be at this point in time? Because when you talk about everything, you know, the, the mm. universe is expanding and accelerating. Mm. Um, so at a certain time from now, 
we won't see squat, I assume. A certain time in the past, we, we wouldn't have been able to do this as well. I mean, are we at just the right time? To, <laughs> well, yeah, is is there something special? Well, it always seems that way. I, I wrote once with tongue-in-cheek, I said, we're living in a very special time in the history of the universe. The only time when we can observationally verify that we're living in a very special time right. in the history of the universe. <laughs> but, but the point is, that's a time-invariant statement. Because it is true, and I've, we've probably talked in the past, but I've certainly written about the fact that in the far future, all the galaxies we now see pretty well will disappear. Or they'll be gone because they'll be moving away from as fast as light. Mm. But we don't know what we'll be able to observe then that we can't observe now. And it, it is an incredibly exciting time in mm. cosmology. But I, again, I think that, that those, those the incredibly exciting times continue. They surprise us. We are lucky that we can see many facets of the universe that will be invisible and would have been invisible in the past. Mm. But as I say, we don't know what we're missing at the same time. Mm. And, and, and before, before people jump into, jump to the conclusion and say, well, therefore everything we think of is now, you know, suspect because we don't know if we'll see something in the future that'll discredit it all. That's not the way science works. So the, the, the observational evidence, the Big Bang, is not going to be changed by what we learn in the future. It'll change some details of it, but the fact that the Big Bang really happened won't change. Just like Einstein may have, you know, supplanted Newton, but you take a baseball or let's say a cricket ball, if you want to talk about something more boring, um, <laughs> and you drop it. Hang on. Sorry, I know. Yeah, I've just alienated all your, all your listeners. But, uh, and you drop it, it'll fall down. It's not going to fall up because of anything we learn about gravity in the future. The same with the Big Bang. Mm. Now, um, it's interesting. The, the last time you and I spoke, we um, we were talking a bit about the James Webb, and it was a far distant thing in the future yeah. back then, and the, and the potential funding for it was actually almost going to vanish. Yes, it almost died several times. Yeah, so, so we're now in this almost amazing transition where we're moving from Hubble, mm -hmm. uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, to the James Webb. What will this mean for astronomy and cosmology? Well, of course, the, the great hope is that it will, I mean, is it'll mean something we can't possibly talk about right now because we'll make discoveries that we hadn't mm -hmm. anticipated, but it will push back the, the time where we can view galaxies to the, to, to the earliest moments when galaxies first began to form in the universe, about a billion or so or 500 million years after the Big Bang. And we'll learn about how they formed and answer, maybe answer certain questions, chicken and egg questions, for example. Every galaxy seems to have a big black hole in it. Who formed first, the black holes or the galaxies? Yeah. Were one necessary for the other? It will also, because of it, because it's looking far back in time and light stretches, that means the light from that was blue is now red. It's designed, it actually looks at infrared radiation because a lot of the visible light is now infrared. Well, it turns out that might be useful for looking for planets and mm -hmm. maybe life, you know, or symbols of life in some ways. So it, it'll have a lot of other applications. Anytime you build a dramatically new technology, you're likely to find lots of uses you didn't have before. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. And I'm happy that it, it's it's going to go up. At, at, at the time, it looked like it was just costing too much, but it's under control. And what's really neat is actually the Hubble is lasting longer than we imagined. So both yeah. of them will be up at the same time, and that'll be kind of neat too. Yeah, I mean, Hubble's been there for more than 20 years now, which is just extraordinary. Yeah, and, it, and it inspires people. Whenever I give yeah. a lecture and show a picture from Hubble, and you want to be... If you want to see something truly inspiring and what you might call even spiritual, just look at a Hubble Space Telescope mm, picture. Indeed. Now, um, when we talk about galaxies, there's there's a big issue with galaxies because, of course, if you add up all the visible matter that you see in a galaxy and you determine how fast the galaxy rotates as a result of that matter, something's wrong. Now, hence, we bring in dark matter. I mean, I mean... Talk us through, you, you You were one of the ones, I think, who suggested some of the early experiments in dark matter. I mean, yeah, yeah, what's yeah, going on yeah. there? I mean, where are we in terms of the search for dark matter? Well, it's we're still searching. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been writing and, 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 and doing research related to dark matter for 30 years now. And, and uh, when I 
proposed the experiments that are now being done almost 30 years ago. I thought they'd be done in five years. Yeah. That's because I'm not an experimentalist. <laughs> but uh, but um, the, the interesting fact is it started with an observation which was suspect, perhaps, that when we looked, when we tried to weigh our galaxy, which, which we can do by using gravity, by seeing how fast objects move around, they move around faster if there's more gravity, basically, which means there's more mass. We discovered that as we went further and further out in our galaxy, uh, that, in fact, objects didn't slow down as you thought they would. They kept going the same speed. In fact, some there were Australian scientists who played a key role in that. Uh, and, and at least one of them, I think, won the Prime Minister's Prize at, at earlier on. But anyway, um, uh, that is interesting. But, you know, astronomy is pretty dirty and messy, and so maybe there are reasons for that. We look at every galaxy and we see the same thing. But it turns out there are other ways of measuring the mass of galaxies we can use general relativity and look at the curvature of light around them and everything comes up with the same answer. They weigh almost uh, these large, not just galaxies, but clusters of galaxies weigh maybe 30 times as much as you can account for all the stars and hot stuff in there and, and that you might see shining. And so we, with our great linguistic perspicacity, call it dark matter because it doesn't shine. And what's what makes it interesting to people like me is that there's so much of it now, and for reasons we don't have time to go into here, but there's so much of it. We actually can constrain the total amount of normal matter in the universe that's made of protons and neutrons. There's so much of it that we're virtually certain it's made of something else, mm. something that's different than what makes you, you and I, a new kind of elementary particle, which means it's actually not just out there. It's in this room going through you and I and your listeners as, as we do this program, which is why we're able to propose experiments underground to look for it. And it's it's very exciting because not only... It turns out to be essential for our existence. It turns out we've shown that that in fact, if you if normal matter was all there was, there wouldn't have been enough time for galaxies to actually form from the beginning of time. You needed dark matter, which should collapse early on, and then basically all the normal stuff fell into those potential wells created by the dark matter. Mm-hmm. So it's really responsible for our existence. So again, if you say, who cares about dark matter? The answer is you wouldn't be here if it wasn't here. Yeah. And and so we'll not only learn about that, but from a particle physics perspective we might discover these fundamentally new, interesting elementary particles. And what makes it even more interesting from a point of view of drama is that, well, you can, these particles we think were created at the very beginning of time. And so we look for them underground. But another way to look for them is to try and recreate conditions in the early history of the universe. Where can you do that? In, on small scales in particle accelerators. So at the Large Hadron Collider, we're actually producing conditions where we think we might actually create those particles. So there's a race between the, those direct detection mm. people and the and the and the large hadron collider people. And you know maybe none, neither of them will detect it, and it'll be something new, or or uh, we'll make a big discovery. Because we've actually got a uh, dark matter detection experiment being set up here in Victoria, I believe, in a stall gold mine. In, in in everywhere there's a mine is now a good potential <laughs> yeah, place to do it yeah. if we can and it and it's nice to see that these things are going on around the world and mm. and uh, it's important of course to have many such experiments because already there have been cases where one experiment claimed the discovery and the, what you mm. really need in science is a bunch to be able to check it to see if they're wrong and most most claim discoveries are wrong in science and that yep. and that's the other thing and it's true for theories too uh, we have to be very skeptical and mm. and uh, and we'll see. And uh, uh, 
every time I hear a discovery, I expect it to be wrong. Yeah. And, and that's that works out pretty well yeah, for me. That's good. Well, the, pro <laughs> the process overall works well. The, um, the one thing about dark matter that's never been explained to me in a reasonable way is if there's so much of it that's so important and it gravitationally interacts, we, we yeah. know this. Why? why is it that when we send a, a probe out to Pluto and beyond, we're not making corrections for it? Okay, here it's the reason is actually pretty simple. Okay, the... We live in a very rare part of the universe where there's a lot of normal stuff, mm -hmm. <laughs> basically. The density of the, you know, the Earth is sort of, you know, one, one grab per cubic centimeter. If you work it out, that's maybe 10 to the 24, 10 to the 25 protons per cubic centimeter. The average density of protons in the universe is one proton per cubic meter. Right. So dark matter can overwhelm that by a factor of two or three on average. But in the rare places where there's a lot of normal stuff, Dark matter is irrelevant. And you can work it out that actually in the region of the sun, if we if it does what we think it does, dark matter might affect the gravitational forces by one part in 100 billion or so, which is not enough to worry about for most things. Although people have tried to look to see if they can probe that. And then I've even proposed experiments. Uh, well, signals that might might be due to that, but it's really it's just we live in in a in a rare island of matter in a universe that's mostly empty. Mm. Now, a whole lot of people are probably grabbing for their scotch right now. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Lawrence, um, we've covered dark matter. I think we've we've pretty much you know dragged every penny out of that one. So, <laughs> what, what about this other concept people hear a bit less about dark energy? What, what's what's that all about? Well, dark energy is actually in some ways much more well, it in many ways much more exotic than dark matter. Dark matter is just new particles, which mm. is neat. But and, and and believe me, it's very interesting. But uh, but dark energy is something that we don't understand at all. You take energy, what we've discovered, and um, we'll talk about how we discovered it, is that you take space, empty space, get rid of all the particles, radiation, everything, and it weighs something. Mm. And we don't understand why the heck it weighs anything. It's the biggest mystery in science. And we were driven to this. Uh, this I mean, Einstein had actually thrown... Uh, thrown a term in his equations, which corresponds to an energy of empty space. He didn't understand it as such. We now understand that such a term should always appear, and but we, we but we really never understood it. Most sensible theorists thought it was zero because that was the only sensible value for it. That's why, how we went to bed at night. Okay, but we were driven to realize it existed, and I'm I actually happy to say that that I you know proposed it existed in '95, and my friends. Um, including, you know, my good friend Brian Schmidt, we're, we're, we're doing experiments to try and basically show the opposite. And I'm very happy that, that, that in fact, that they discovered that it really, it really is there, for which Brian and others won the Nobel Prize. And mm -hmm. it, is, it is one of the most surprising discoveries, because I have to say, when I proposed it, I certainly didn't believe it. Right. It was just, it, just, <laughs> it, it was just the fact that the, experiment, the observations drove us to such an ugly thing. And that's another wonderful aspect of science. <laughs> you know, is that is that what you like or what you think is beautiful or what you think is elegant may be nice, but it doesn't really matter. Mm. The universe determines what is. And if and if it, if you don't like it, you better get used to it. And and none of us. I mean, this it's a mystery. It's a puzzle. And in fact, it's going to produce a, a miserable future, as I've written in one of my books. Uh, but it is there. And 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 it, and of course, wonderful puzzles mean that some of your listeners who are kids, if there are any, there's a great opportunity because we don't have the slightest mm -hmm. understanding of it, and and it's going to be a much harder puzzle to solve than that of dark matter, I think. Mm -hmm. And so we need, we probably 
there's probably no experiments we can do that's going to reveal much more about it. So what we really need is a good idea, and that takes a, a lot longer. Talk us through the confirmation of its existence. I mean, what, what was that experiment? Well, I mean, the, the ant- all of your listeners who've taken physics know that gravity sucks. <laughs> it, always, <laughs> it always, especially the biologists here around me. But anyway, um, the, 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 uh, it always pulls, it never pushes, okay? And so what, what, what um, people were looking for, we all know the universe is expanding, but in a sensible universe, that expansion should be slowing down. Mm. And Brian and others used these standard candles, these supernovae, which we could see at far distances, and we could use them to determine the distance of those galaxies and measure how fast they were moving away from us. And since we could see them at very far distances, we could look globally at how the universe was slowing down. And they were trying to do the best measurement, in part to determine how much dark matter there was, by the way, to see if there was enough matter, dark matter to make what we call a flat universe. Mm. And what they saw instead as they look at the, those things is that the universe was speeding up over time and not slowing down. It was a huge surprise. And um, and I have to say, it's amazing from a sociological perspective that it was accepted so quickly. But I think the reason was that people, not just because of my own work, but that there were a lot of puzzles that could only be really ultimately explained if it was there. So that's the other other sample. People say, well, you know, there's new data saying maybe the, the supernova weren't as doing what they're doing. And I, there was just a new report that caused, I keep answering a lot of questions about it, which, by the way, the new report doesn't say they, they were wrong. It just says mm. maybe statistically it wasn't as strong as they thought. Uh, but it's not just that observation. You get There's lots of other observations, in fact. And the simplest one is we've actually measured the, the, the geometry of the universe, which we can talk about in another program. And it's the, the universe is what's called flat, which is not flat like a pancake, but it's flat like it's the universe you always thought you lived in, where the X, Y, and Z, you know, so I said Z, X, Y, and Z axes are always pointing the same direction in space. Mm. Well, it turns out we've actually determined how much dark matter there is by weighing the, the universe on the largest scales we can do. There's only 30% of the amount of stuff to make the universe flat. We were missing 70% of the energy of the universe. How, where could it be? Well, those observations of supernova tell us that 70% of the energy of the universe resides in empty space. So it, it's not just that own one observation. It's, it's a lot of different data that gives us great confidence that that, 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 that really revolutionary observation, which, is, which flies in the face of common sense, mm-hmm. which again should have you be worried yeah. about common sense. Uh, because we evolved to have common sense to avoid lions on the savannah in Africa, not to do quantum mechanics. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so it, 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 we have a lot of a lot of confidence that that really strange result is right. Mm. Now, last year, of course, we had this amazing piece of data came in and the announcement of gravitational waves yeah. being detected. I mean, what did this mean to someone like yourself? I mean, this is an area that for those of us who are in physics for a long time and, yeah. and we've, we've you know, studied yeah. Einstein's work and, you know, some of us, I don't know about you, but my fourth year quantum exam, you know, had to derive half of that mm. stuff, you know, in an eight-hour yeah. period sort of stuff. You know, there's yeah. the stuff of nightmares. But to see this <laughs> to see this literally be measured, I mean, what, it, what does it mean to you, Lawrence? Well, it's remarkable. To, I mean, I've just lectured on it here in, in, in Melbourne and, and – uh, uh, um, and actually, before in, in in Canberra last week, it's a it's a great interest to me because it's 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 such a uh, it's to give such testimony to the human perspicacity in some sense and to the amazing things the universe can do. Because detecting gravitational waves, it, it, it's the idea has been around, and, and there are great. What's great about gravitational waves is that gravity interacts so weakly that we can use gravity waves if we could see them. Gravitational waves to look at systems we'd never be able to observe. Gravitational wave astronomy is going to be the astronomy of the 21st, 22nd, and maybe 23rd centuries. But it seems it should be impossible. To give you just one example, 
The, in order to detect the gravitational waves that were discovered uh, earlier this year, actually, they were seen last year, but, mm, yeah. but, but, but first uh, announced this year. We do it by very simply. We have a device which has two arms that are perpendicular to each other. And when a gravity wave comes by, one arm gets a little shorter than the other, and then the other arm gets a little shorter, and it goes back and forth. Sounds easy. But to, to do this, we had arms that were four kilometers long. We had to measure their length. And when these gravity waves came by, the, the challenge was to measure a change in length of a four-kilometer arm by an amount equal to one one-thousandth the size of a proton. Mm. I mean, that's why I'm not an experimentalist. As well. <laughs> it just seems impossible. And the fact yeah. that we're able to do it mm. is amazing. Mm. But, the, but the object we observed, the colliding black holes 1.3 billion light years away, which, by the way, that signal was observed an hour after we turned on the machine. If we waited an hour, we would never have seen it. It took 1.3 billion years to get to us. Was a system that, in gravitational waves, was is so exotic that in it, it, it produced a signal that was two-tenths of a second long of gravitational waves. If you work it out, it was emitting more energy in gravitational waves in that two-tenths of a second than all the rest of the stars in the visible universe were emitting in light during that time. Mm. I mean, these are amazing things. Mm. It's extraordinary yeah. stuff. I've got a really left-of-center question for okay. you. Because you mentioned that, you know, you're obviously not an experimentalist. Yes. Um, do theoretical physicists and experimental physicists sit down in the pub and thrash this stuff out? <laughs> <laughs> I've got this beautiful with, picture with in my fists. head. <laughs> or is it really just from irriting each other's papers that you sort of no, work on? Well, it depends on the theoretical physicist. I, yeah. I happen to like to, I think it's important for my work, I try and keep in touch with experiment because mm. uh, it, but it's not always necessary. There's some people who are, who, who don't, mm. but uh, it's not so much that we, we shit out in the pub, although sometimes we do. It's, it's that, uh, in fact, I think, <laughs> I like to think that we provide fodder for the, for mm. the experimentalists. So we provide things they can prove wrong. Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, and, uh, and they like to surprise us. Uh, it depends on the area in the area of science. I do it. There is really a separation between theorists and experimentalists because mm. the experiments are so are so daunting, and the theory is mathematically so daunting that it, you can't really do both. Do both and it, yeah. it wasn't always that way. The last physicist that, in sort of fundamental physics that could do both was Enrico Fermi. He was a mm -hmm. theorist and experiment. Mm -hmm. But since then, in my area of physics, uh, you can't do both. It's, yeah. In other areas, it's not quite the way. You can actually make progress in both. But um, but we like to, uh, you know, um, make fun of each other and prove each other wrong, definitely. <laughs> oh, Lawrence, I, again, I had a, a broader question and it comes back to that, that beautiful concept that you described that, you know, a, Eure a eureka moment is usually a moment of, oh, hold on, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and that things are never as neat as we want or them to be mm. or believe them to be. And that you described a great example of where in the face of incredibly robust evidence, the science changed. Yeah. Um, and so how is it that we in this post-factual world that we mm -hmm. seem to find yeah. ourselves in, you know, try to um, convey the fact that that science is a process that can change and that that is open to change while still robustly defending the principles of science? It's a, it's a really good question. I mean, I, first of all, the fact that science can change is its greatest strength. Mm. Again, you know, throwing it in, that's one of the biggest weaknesses of religion is that it can't change. But, but but the fact that it can change means that we're learning. It's actually a process called learning. Mm. But but what what is misunderstood, and I tried to allude to it before, is that is that although we can discover new things, that which has satisfied the test of experiment doesn't change. So I, it, it, there's no theory of everything. All theories apply to certain regions of space and time and size and scale. And we all, as we expand our horizons, those theories get subsumed in in in, in larger theories or new theories. But as I said, Newton is, 
is just as good today for calculating a, a cricket ball's trajectory or a spacecraft's trajectory as it was then. It doesn't, it's not as if scientific revolutions do away with everything that went before them. And that's the misconception mm. people have because they say, you know, it's basically, well, everything they think is true today is going to be wrong tomorrow. So why should I learn it? That's, and, and that's not the way it works. It, 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 it's what is satisfied the test experiment will continue to do so. We'll just learn, uh, basically more about how to fit it into a, a greater whole. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and, and that's the other thing. When it comes to the Big Bang or evolution or climate change, people say, oh, these scientists, they just want to hang together. They, they've got a little fraternity. They don't want to ever be wrong. And they don't realize that the way to become famous as a scientist is to prove your colleagues wrong. Yeah. Everyone wants to go in to work every day and prove everyone else wrong. It's not as if being part of the gang gets you, yeah, great, yeah. Gets you great attention. Indeed. Now, we're, we're approaching that period in the year where um, people are looking for uh, gifts for their uh, fellow humans, Lawrence, and you have a new book coming. Yeah, out. I've got a great gift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the new book. Well, it'll, it'll come out after Christmas, but that doesn't mean you can't order it now <laughs> because it can be the gift that keeps on giving yeah, that yeah. way. It'll come out in March, I think, in Australia. Um, a, a new book, it follows on my last one, which is The Universe from Nothing. Um, which addressed the question, why is there something rather than nothing? The new book is called The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far. And it, the subtitle is Why Are We Here? But it take, the last book talked about our revolutions and understanding the universe on the largest scales. This one talks about what I think is, in some sense, the greatest intellectual journey humans have ever taken. Uh, it begins with Plato and goes right to the present, which is to understand the fundamental structure of the universe. And we've discovered that on the small scales, the universe isn't at all what, what it seems like on the, on the scales we live on, which is, which is really part of what science is all about, teaching us that our myopic view of reality is not true. And it, that, that journey, which took a lot of false leads and a lot of um, uh, refusal to accept it by scientists at various pages, is a wonderful intellectual journey. But it ultimately, through the Higgs and beyond, addresses this really interesting question, why are we here? And the answer is, there's no reason. Mm, sounds great. <laughs> Professor Lawrence Koras, uh, thanks for chatting to us. We're going to keep you around for the rest of the show, sure. so we'll, we'll um, no doubt hear from you a bit more. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio now, we have Laura McKay from the Doherty Institute. Laura is one of the winners of the Young Tall Poppy Award for 2016. Laura, welcome to RRR. Great, thanks so much for having me, Shane. Now, you um, first of all, tell us a bit about the uh, the award before we get into your research. I mean, w- what's the the point of this award, and what do you have to do now? Because I remember getting one years ago. Yeah, it's going to change. You should oh, know. <laughs> well, I had to go out to all these schools, and it was it was great. I mean, is it is it the yeah. same sort of thing? Yeah. So, um, don't quite know what's in store yet, but as part of the award, you know, for the for the year, the award winners go around and they get to promote their research, and there's a lot of community outreach involved. So, schools going into mm. schools will definitely be a big part of it. Mm. Okay, so can I give you a piece of advice that when I yes. did it, I made them find the poorest, most uh, difficult schools, and I went there. Yeah, good idea. So cho- choose those ones because they're the ones that need need the scientists yeah, to go out. Yeah, absolutely agree. And because they're not usually targeted by universities for recruitment, they're often the last place yep. to get people. So, And it's yeah. great for them to see a young, energetic woman scientist also. Yeah. I think it's they need to role models because they don't have scientists as role models. Absolutely. So be a role model. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> now, let's talk about your research because you work in the area of T-cells, but, but specifically around what happens in the body sort of in the extremities where, or, or in the areas where infections start. So, what, I mean, what's happening there? Yeah, so it's it's really been quite dogma changing because we know that there are T-cells and they're really great at, you know, these T-cells, they kill bacterial and virally infected cells. And mm. say a lot of our vaccines have really been, you know, 
engineered to boost all these T cells in the blood. And what was unappreciated until about seven years ago is that they're actually a different type of T cell that lives in the tissue. And we call these tissue resident memory T cells. And pretty much everything that we thought we knew about T cells in the blood, we look at these resident T cells in the tissue and they're entirely different. So, you know, if you're trying to make new vaccines to boost T cells in the blood, every kind of adjuvant that you might be using, it tends to work completely differently on these cells in the tissue. And it's actually these cells in the tissue which really... um you know, they're really key to, you know, they're at the front line. So if you've mm. got a malaria infection, you want these T cells in the liver. If you've got an influenza infection, you want these cells in the lung. And so my research is working out how these T cells survive in the tissue, how they're generated in the tissue, because they live and die there. So, you know, once these T cells are there, they don't come back into the blood. So we're kind of, you know, engineering new approaches to get these T cells to stay in the mm. tissue. I mean, do these T cells work better than other parts of the immune system? Are they just you know, faster or what, why do we care so much about these ones? Yeah, it's it's really controversial in the literature, but um, our research shows right place at the right time. So if you've, say, got a herpes virus infection that, you know, is, you know starts off in the skin, mm. it, you know, you've got to wait sort of about 24 hours from cells to the blood to actually get into that side of infection. Yeah. Whereas if you've got T cells right there on the front line, they're ready to go straight away. Mm. So you just mentioned then that there's the, obviously the tissue resident T cells. Are they, do they behave differently depending on what the tissue is? Like, do you have to research every every single organ in the body individually or do they have similarities? Yeah, so this is exactly kind of what we're doing at the moment. So there are common there, there are certain things that are common. So there are certain genes that we've been working on which are kind of universal, which, you know, if you're in the skin or the liver or the lung, there are certain genes that are controlled and conserved. But there's also kind of, you know, the environment of the tissue which kind of affects these T cells as well. Mm. So we do have to study all different organs. Mm. And in terms of vaccines, I mean, when you talk about vaccines, I mean, there's, yeah. there's that element of it that, you know, you have a particular vaccine for a particular disease, but is this something more sort of broader where you would sort of enable the body to use these T cells differently for any infection or do you have to be disease specific? No, not necessarily. So, you know, there are certain ways which we can, you know, as a immune response starts, and this is kind of what we're working on at the moment, we can kind of engineer the immune response at the beginning when the T cell first sees it sort of, you know, um, antigen or specific sort of part of the mm. virus, if you like, where we can kind of add certain compounds which can make these T cells go into all tissues. So that's what we're working on at the moment. Mm. And, and what about things like autoimmune diseases where, you know, this stuff is already going wrong? I mean, are these sorts of treatments going yes. to be problematic? You're getting excited yes. about it. Yeah. Oh. I mean, what, what does this mean? Because, You're on the money. Yeah. Because that, that's, that's so, you know, to me, I just find that whole area very fascinating because yep. it, is, it is one of those where the immune system is really getting it wrong. And you, you've just come out and said there's a complexity here that we didn't know about before, which means solving that first problem is now presumably a lot harder or maybe more possible. Yeah, it's now becoming so complex. So we didn't appreciate these T cells were there at all. Mm. And it's largely because, you know, we just sample the blood, you know, from patients. Right. We don't actually yeah. look in the tissues. Now we're finding that, you know, these T, these T cells, say, for instance, they're all over the skin. And we sent, we're now kind of revisiting autoimmune conditions and certain hypersensitivities such as psoriasis. We're finding that these T cells in the skin, and it's actually these resident T cells that are the key players again. So, you know, there's always a good side and a bad side with the immune system, but these previously unappreciated cells could actually be the bad guys in a lot of autoimmune conditions as well. Mm. So a lot of what we're working on is, you know, so largely in my lab, we look at, you know, how these T cells tick. But uh, one side of our research is how can we flush these T cells out of the tissue? So how can we switch on certain genes with certain molecules to get rid of them in conditions where, you know, they're, they're the bad guys? They're going wrong, yeah. One of the other things um, that you've been working on is uh, setting up something called the, so the annual vaccination cafe. 
This sounds good to me. Um, I think there's, you know, I think there's some value in vaccinations. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just chucking it out there. Let's take a poll in the studio. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah. I mean, we're all, I mean, we're hoping all of you have been vaccinated. Um, what's, what's the vaccination cafe idea about? So it's part of the Day of Immunology, which is kind of a big event for us in mm. April. And the vaccination cafes, oh, it's, it's, really, it's really great both for the public and the scientists. So a lot of sort of, you know, of the institutions such as, you know, the Doherty, the Walton Eliza Hall, we all come together. A lot of scientists come down and we, you know, we talk about our research, you know, and we promote our research and we have kind of posters on our research. It's advertised to the public and the public can come at the same time, talk to the scientists about what they're actually doing and about the importance of vaccinations and also get their flu shot while they're there. So it's a really kind of, it's a really nice event where, you know, the community and the scientists can engage together and the scientists get really excited about it because, you know, we want to, you know, talk to the public about what we're doing. Mm. I mean, I mean, from your perspective as someone working in this field, I mean, how big is the vaccination problem in Australia? I mean, we hear a bit about it. But one of the things I've often said is that there's been, except for this sort of thing you're talking about, scientists have not been promoting the value of vaccinations for 30, 40 years. I mean, back back when we were removing polio and so forth, it was a big deal. But we've all gotten used to that. We've yeah. all forgotten what it looks like. And the last time you saw, hey, these vaccinations are working really well in the news was what? 1965. Mm. Uh, I mean, how bad is the problem at the moment? Yeah, I mean, there's. It's. I think because there's not enough engagement. People, you know, I mean, for, for a scientist, it, it's an absolute given that you know vaccinations, you know, the way forward, and mm. there's, and there's no discussion among scientists because it's such a given. Whereas when we have kind of the vaccination cafe, there's a lot of. Uh, say social media about it and it's really coming apparent of, you know people get on kind of you know online kind of blogging to us about how oh you know you guys don't know what you're doing and it's all propaganda and and it's and, you know we were kind of in disbelief about it and this is why things like the tall poppy award and getting you know the you know scientists mm. to engage with the community is so important because people aren't going out and talking about it enough well what's what's what oh, i'm gonna jump in if it's okay um What's equally important is that not only the scientists not talking about it, but the people who are talking about it are the people who are the misinformed ones. Exactly, oh, yeah. You know, from Prince Charles on to, you know, and, and so people are seeing a lot of famous people who are misinformed and they're not hearing the other side. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I just did a meeting of skeptics here in, in, in Melbourne and this issue is so important that people realize that that uh, they should, you know, the information has to get out as well as the misinformation. Mm. Yeah. But I think that what's really interesting is that when there is a perception of risk, there's actually quite a high demand for vaccines. For example, you know, if you look at some of the vaccines that have been launched recently, for example, the shingles vaccine, um, they're actually like um, over, like, they've underestimated the amount of vaccine that's required because of the demand and people saying, oh, you know, I'm concerned about this risk to me and my health. I want to get vaccinated. And, and so in some ways, you know, you do come back to that old argument that vaccines are a victim of their own success because, you know, we no longer perceive some of those risks, but I think it's fascinating when, you know, uh, particularly around uh, quite life-threatening diseases like some of the meningococcal strains for which there is no vaccine currently available. Mm. You know, there is actually high demand um, from from people who say, "No, I, I want to be protected from this." So, I, I think um, I think it does work. It, it does work both ways. Mm. Well, Laura, from one of the things I'd love to get from you as such a good communicator, as in you are. Um, <laughs> Is is just a quick one minute explanation of how a vaccine actually works. I mean, any vaccine. Yeah. So it's sort of mimicking your your body's natural response to infection. So you know, if you get an infection, you know, with influenza, for example, you know, your body sees that infection, your immune cells, um, cells they expand and they have, and then they clear the infection. Then afterwards, they have this memory where they can remember the pathogen. They can remember influenza. And if you get it a second time 
the immune cells, they're better, they're faster, they can go in and they can clear it straight away. And what a vaccine does is it just mimics our own natural immune response. So, you know, the vaccine will um, boost those immune cells so that they'll have memory like they do naturally. So then when we see it for the first time, we've had a vaccination, so we've boosted our immune cells and then um, the body can clear it straight away like we would naturally. Mm. Laura McKay, absolutely brilliant stuff. Congratulations again on winning the Tall Poppy Award for this year. We hope uh, many school children benefit from your great communication style and thanks for coming in and chatting to us. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Now, uh, we're going to have to say goodbye, Lawrence. Are you going back to the Australian Skeptics Conference? Yeah, I'm going back there today, but I'll be back in uh, the country, in fact, in Melbourne and other places in May after the book comes out. So I'll be doing lectures here and elsewhere in the end of May. I hope to see you and a lot of people around here too. We'll chat again. It's going to be fun. And and remember, folks, if you are looking for that elusive Christmas gift (laughs) and uh, dark matter is not something you're scared of or anything about the universe. Um, Lawrence's book is, is going to be available. Right? Yeah, and, and in, in, buy many copies. <laughs> As I yeah. often say, buying it is really more important than reading it, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the, act of, the act of giving. Yeah. yeah, I just imagine these kids opening up 10 presents under the tree and they're all your book. Horrid. <laughs> Thanks so much for chatting to us, Lawrence. Sure. Dr. Crystal, good to have you in. Always a pleasure. A couple more shows to go. And, and then, then it's Christmas. Then it's Christmas, yeah. It's Christmas. And Lauren, you're uh, you're pretty much back. I'm you, back. you are back. I'm, ba- I'm so back in the real world. You're back yes. in the real world. Yes, yep. yes. No, they're loving, loving being back in the radio. Oh, very good stuff. And uh, Lou's been doing our Twitter feed and we'll continue to do so a little bit next year. We're, we're having negotiations at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's getting busy. But anyway, uh, we're going to have to leave it there and hand over to the team from Edith. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo today. And we will give you another great show next week if I can uh, find the time to prepare it, which will no doubt happen. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. And thanks for listening to Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.